0: And then on the infrastructure side, how does change happen? It can seem extremely sudden. Marijuana legalization, same-sex marriage. 10 years ago, both of those seemed impossible. Now, door closed, door closed, door closed, door closed, door suddenly wide open. How does that happen? Can it be replicated? What's the formula for that?
1: Or on the flip side, Roe going away, perhaps. Absolutely, yeah.
0: absolutely. Or
1: absolutely. Trump and Trumpism showing up.
0: yeah. 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 Uh, Stephen Miller regards immigration. Yeah, exactly. So how to navigate culture politics and civil society generally, just really tough.
1: Hello, this is The Great Battlefield Podcast. I'm Nathaniel G. Perlman. A great political battle is being fought right now between progressives and the forces of reaction on the other side. This show is about the political entrepreneurs and other progressive leaders who are finding new or improved ways to fight. My guest today is Scott Nielsen, who is Managing Director of Advocacy at Arabella Partners, which is a donor services firm. I'm interested in how progressive causes and organizations get funded, and I was happy to have the chance to talk to Scott about his career and how the funding space works from his perspective, as well as his particular interest in turning around politics in rural America. So, after a quick word from our sponsor, my interview with Scott Nielsen at Arabella.
0: Check out the large, detailed, and high-quality political data graphic posters from Time Plots. Our visual history of the American presidency, for example, lets you see the Clinton, Bush, Obama, and Trump presidencies in full context. Timeplots Library includes visual histories of the United States House, the United States Senate, the Supreme Court, and the Democratic and Republican parties. Find them all at www.timeplots.com. Use the code BATTLEFIELD for a discount.
1: Scott, would you mind introducing yourself and giving me a quick biography?
0: I'm Scott Nielsen. I'm a managing director at Arabella Advisors. That's a donor services firm. I live in Chicago. I was born here in Chicago, mostly grew up in Iowa. Uh, Went to college in Minnesota, Macalester College in St. Paul. Uh, Worked in um, public relations for a while, and then decided to go to graduate school. Uh, I went to the University of Chicago Divinity School. And while I was there, I had an internship at the MacArthur Foundation and um, it was a summer internship that kind of just went on for a while and then became kind of a permanent part-time. And then when I finished my graduate school coursework, I became full-time program officer, mostly in the general program and uh, environment program. And then I switched to the MacArthur Fellows Program, worked there for about seven years, which is the greatest job in philanthropy of not the world.
1: Yeah, I'm I'm kind of envious. I've always wanted to get one of those MacArthur Genius Awards, and I I wondered if I can get one without being a genius.
0: Probably not every MacArthur fellow is a genius, but <laughs> a lot of them are.
1: <laughs> it just seems like such the brass ring in uh or gold ring in in the world to to have that kind of recognition and and it's a lot of leeway to do whatever you want, right?
0: It's complete leeway. And kind of just the last bastion of pure philanthropy, where you just get a phone call that says, congratulations, here's whatever the whatever the award is now, it's a lot. For five years, do whatever you want with it, because it's the purpose is to enable your creativity.
1: I guess you have to earn that place. <laughs> that seems unfortunate. Yeah. Um, yes. You know, there's a couple things about that quick bio I wanted to ask you about. One, I have a nephew currently at McAllister and and a cousin's son. And I didn't know much about Macalester but now they both seem to be having a good time. How was that experience for you?
0: It was great. It was great. Yes. Um you know, it was the late 70s early 80s it wasn't as wealthy as it is now. Um it had kind of gone through a rough period. But it, you know, it's just one of those great liberal arts colleges in the Midwest. Um, I grew up in Grinnell, Iowa, so they have a nice college too. They have a really nice, wealthy college, um, but you know there's Carlton and St. Olaf and Lawrence, and there's just a bunch of them. Mm-hmm. And it's it was it was great. What was
1: what did you study there?
0: I was an English major, religion minor.
1: Yep. So religion minor there, and the divinity school later. Uh, you must have grown up as a religious person, or just an interest in that. Uh,
0: more an interest in it. My father's father was a was a pastor, um, but wasn't religious and am not now, but uh, was very committed to the humanities. And my experience in the corporate world led me to think I don't want to stay here. And I thought my only other alternative was to be a professor. I really had no idea about this whole nonprofit foundation, independent sector. I didn't know that existed until I started my MacArthur internship.
1: You said that's one of the greatest jobs in philanthropy. Yeah, Tell me a little more about it. What did you learn there? That, you were there a long time. You, I was there you, a long time. Yeah. One learns a lot when you stay that amount of time in an institution
0: like that. Prior to joining the Genius Grants, of fellows program, I just really learned about the landscape. We didn't call it that, but the progressive landscape of various issues and places and communities and policies um, and kind of learned what it is to be a funder and how to sort through various strategies and groups and leaders and think through how could this money be effective in producing positive outcomes and impacts.
1: It seems like money isn't always helpful in creating positive impacts. All kinds of money, foreign aid money, private equity money, philanthropic money is just a challenge to government money of all sorts, it's a super challenge to create the kind of results that you want. What lessons did you take from that time about what works and what doesn't?
0: You can harm an organization by giving them more money than they can really accommodate. That's that's usually the the other uh, is true where organizations and you as a donor have really large ambitions And the money that you can provide in no way correlates to the ambitions you seek. So too many groups and almost all of them underfunded. So after I left MacArthur as an independent consultant for a long time, working with big foundations, small foundations, family foundations, individual donors, mostly in civic engagement and issue advocacy. And then I decided to go to Arabella because I saw that donors increasingly wanted to work together to pool their funds to kind of combine their networks and their experiences and their strategies to try to solve for this scale problem, to really fund at a level that might produce the impact they seek.
1: I mean, you refer to that as a donor services organization. I don't think I would have even understood that terminology not that many years ago. What does that mean exactly?
0: So, um there's foundations, corporate foundations, uh, other kinds of institutional charitable organizations and individual donors and they need places to collaborate and they need help designing grant-making programs, how to think about supporting a field or a group relative to an issue or a campaign or a community. And so we kind of are a full-service provider of both fiscal sponsorship, so this is your home for both donors and projects and campaigns, and also strategy and kind of landscaping. Here's all the groups working on the issue you care about. Let me help you sort them through relative to your priorities. Here's what a grant-making portfolio might look like. You know, you've got organizing, you've got communications, you've got tools, and all the various components to a successful strategy.
1: What's the scope of of what Arabella works on? What are the, uh, are there any boundaries? I assume it's kind of driven by the interests of the donors, but the firm must have some things it pushes for, categories that it knows best about.
0: We really don't. We're not ideologically driven. There's hardly an issue in philanthropy that we don't have some connection to. So it, you're right. It's really what what does the donor want to do? What does the campaign want to do? What does the organization want to do? And it's every issue. It's every community across the board.
1: You're the managing director of advocacy. What's the scope of your portfolio?
0: I well, inc- increasingly, it's really expansive since um, there's hardly any social change issues that don't require advocacy in some way. I mean... Childhood hunger is now a right-left issue. So, whereas 20, 30, 40 years ago, philanthropy could kind of be apolitical, ideological. Now, um, really everything designed to change the, the, the status quo requires an advocacy intervention. And that's you know grassroots organizing, that's media relations, that's culture and narrative change, litigation used to be mostly policy analysis, foundations mostly funded, Beltway, think tanks as a way to change policy. And that's just woefully inadequate now.
1: Give me an example of an area that you've worked in pretty intensively.
0: Civic engagement, voter engagement, probably my longest uh,
1: commitment. What are the key players, would you say, in that area that you're attending to?
0: It really varies as to the place and the strategy. But for example, um, when I started in philanthropy in the 90s, most of the big foundations supported think tanks and university research centers, mostly in DC and New York. And increasingly, that became um, inadequate to enfranchisement, you know, broad enfranchisement and helping. Um, voters actually get to the polls and sort through disinformation, et cetera, et cetera. So after the 2004 election, um, a bunch of us came together and formed State Voices, which is a national network of state multi-issue, multi-constituency tables, um, and provided them with tools and training and media support, communication support, to try to aggregate all of the different assets that progressives have and really had not been thought of as as a as a potential entity state
1: voices i've interviewed some of the heads of local tables i've interviewed the head of state voices nationally executive director alexis yeah how would you evaluate that over the time since it's got going how much of a difference do you think it's made
0: i think it's made an enormous difference uh and Different states have different funding sources and, and priorities, um, but I think in places like Georgia, Colorado, New Mexico, Arizona, uh, Michigan, it's made an enormous difference. How? By bringing together these various resources you know money, tools, networks, lists, organizing capacity that's the main way. How
1: much of a role would you say you played in
0: that, you know, from inception to now? I helped, along with some others, theorize the concept. We have to move into states. There are a lot of groups in states. Most of them are fairly nascent. Link them together around voting, which many of them never did, but give them the the tools and, and find funding for them to do that work. That basically was how I kind of contributed to the beginning. And then I was on the board as a founding board member for a long time and helped kind of sell the idea around philanthropy that this really is, regardless of what your issue is, climate, education, healthcare, poverty, whatever, you need to invest in this strategy and these groups and made it easy for them. So they weren't making dozens of $25,000 grants. They could make one large one and have that money get to the ground. Who
1: are the key supporters of State Voices? What kind of aggregators of funding and what other donors? Like, who? What's the team that makes that happen from the funding standpoint?
0: Um, from the beginning, it was a lot of small, mostly family foundations. The sales cycle to large philanthropy took a while, but then it was the ones you'd imagine: OSF and Carnegie and Ford, Democracy Alliance, and now dozens of foundations fund them, both the national and in states. And there was a correlate that was developed, too, that was um, absolutely uh, vital to the success of the story, and that was that state donors formed their own tables, C3 and C4, and helped both kind of rationalize work in their states, but also bring in national donors that they they knew what's the analog on the other side um there's the Koch network there's the alec there's the chamber there's lots of them
1: so you think those are analogs to state voices
0: oh to state voices yeah. um i don't think there is really a very direct analog like that because there aren't dozens and dozens and dozens of small grassroots right-wing groups but it's the chamber and it's business groups and re- religious groups primarily that have that kind of national to local coherency. What point did you get involved with Democracy Alliance? Um, pretty early. I would say 2006, 2007, I was working for the um, chair of the Democracy Alliance board and so started to work with him and to try to make that connection between those donors who are kind of unfamiliar with all this, especially the C3 you know, the ocean of C3 groups and strategies and concerns and funding needs. So it's kind of a ambassador and bridge builder between those largely political donors and this kind of civil society network of groups.
1: I remember when Rob Stein was going around with a presentation, I think I I saw one of the early ones, I'm not sure how, which was look at the progressive infrastructure. It's far less developed than the one on the right. And we need to fill in these gaps. How have we done in leveling that playing field? And I guess the next question would be, what's left?
0: Yeah, we've done a remarkable amount. Um, we were never going to be as coherent and kind of prearranged as the right is, but we have filled a lot of gaps. And Democracy Alliance has a huge role to you know to, to their credit. Progress now, for example came out of that analysis, Rob's analysis and our, our response. State voices on the C3 side, America votes on the C4 side. Um, the national organizing networks um, have also become more kind of civically, uh, politically sophisticated. They've all created C4s now. Uh, our communications has vastly improved, remarkably long way to go still. Uh, but in terms of building an infrastructure that could kind of compete in states. I think we've done a lot in the last 15 years. If I ask
1: a lot of people in the space about progressive donors, sort of writ large as a class, there's sometimes a disgruntlement about where money goes, to whom it goes, how it goes, timing of it. Nobody's happy. Nobody's generally happy. One of the complaints I hear is it chases the shiny new thing rather than supporting the tested and useful thing. I no way of evaluating that particularly. I have seen examples of that for sure. How do you evaluate that? How do you think about that complaint or criticism?
0: I think it's fair. I think it's definitely fair. I mean, different donors have different kind of time horizons for getting what they want and seeing the, return on their investment. And so sorting through what might work and what might work quickly is, I'm sure, crazy making for groups that need to fund their their budgets. Institutional donors, foundations tend to have longer time horizons and have a more uh, kind of day in, day out erudition and analysis than some kind of political donors, individual donors. But even they too, they're senior staff and their boards are wondering, what are we getting for this investment? What success are we seeing? And to the extent that philanthropy increasingly, especially after 2000 and the venture philanthropy movement, they assess impact by, you know, quantitative analysis and organizing and culture change and political will building does not correspond to those kinds of assessment tools. So I think um, it's been a project and I think we're making progress on it to develop rigorous qualitative as well as quantitative metrics that really can answer the question, you know, how how are we doing and where, where do we need to invest more?
1: Another complaint might be that it's similar to, to the private world that The people who get money are disproportionately, I don't know, white men or in privileged classes. Do you think that's still the case? Do you think that's changed a lot? What do you see?
0: It's changed a lot and it's changing really rapidly. So central-left philanthropy, at least, has kind of really, with a great deal of intention and speed, especially for foundations, um, trying to redress that. Yeah, I, I do see...
1: A lot of support for minority executive directors, founders, things like that. Much more than I I used to see.
0: Oh, yeah. 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 Exponentially more. Yeah. Yeah.
1: How about in terms of audiences? Are we sending enough efforts around civic engagement to traditionally under-invested areas of the country? You know, that ranges from, you know, the places that we've given up on, maybe the the rural areas to the places we take for granted certain kinds of urban areas. What do you see there?
0: I do think that we have kind of backed away from small city and rural voters uh, to our peril. I think there's beginnings of a, a turnaround there. It's just really hard to assess, especially with limited funds, limited infrastructure, where we should really prioritize. And so I think progressives are, and just those who believe in democracy are really asking that question urgently right right now. Because uh, the Senate looks
1: tough moving forward. What's your personal opinion about changes that should be made from the status quo?
0: I do think we have to invest in small cities and rural people, I, I do think that. And there's very little infrastructure that's funded by donors. And that's the priority I have right now.
1: You started or helped to start a group in the rural arena, Heartland, right?
0: Heartland is the C3. The Rural Victory Fund is the C4. It's all under the kind of rubric of the Rural uh, Democracy Initiative. And I did start that after the 2016 election with some others.
1: Well, tell me about the founding story there. What, What were you thinking and how did you tackle it?
0: Well, I've been wanting to persuade donors to invest in rural, especially upper Midwest, which to me is the most politically salient part of the country. Um, for a long time, never got any interest from anybody. Saw that county map after the 2016 election, um, sea of red with a few blue dots and thought, this is how we got here. So let's, let's redress this. And so a uh, couple small donors, Got, got together to fund, to start the C3, picked a few states, mostly in the upper Midwest. Still didn't get much traction um, until, really until 2020. And then all of a sudden donors started looking at maps and polls and trends and media coverage. And so we raised, we raised quite a bit of money in a very short period of time. and. 2020, and I do think now we have a foothold in philanthropy and in the progressive kind of infrastructure broadly to make the case and support rural work. What did you do with the money that you raised? We gave it to groups that had genuinely rural kind of connections to uh, the electorate in those places. They registered voters. They countered the right-wing media in those places, educated voters, turned them out, Uh, in 18 and 20, all the while working on some issues, um, COVID, census, climate, immigration. So these are multi-issue, multi-constituency groups with genuine connections to rural places.
1: What's an example of one or two?
0: Land Stewardship Trust in Minnesota. So it's a member organization. uh, Not sure how many members, hundreds of farmers mostly, mostly. And so they mostly do ag policy, and then they do electoral work. They're
1: progressive in there?
0: They're a little hard to pin down ideologically, but the policies they support are ones progressives would support too. If a donor
1: comes to you for advice, like what's the conversation like between you and them when someone who wants to... (laughs) Move our country in a better direction comes to you and says, You know, I, I got some money, I want to make some impact. What do you tell them?
0: Well, it really depends what they really want to do, where they really want to do it, their kind of um, appetite for risk. They probably have a theory of change relative to whatever it is they want to do. Some really want to give it to the grassroots, some really want to do media. So, you know, kind of assessing who they are, what their comfort is, and what they really want to do, then present kind of a roadmap of where their investments could could make a real difference.
1: So if I came to you and I said, you have a religious background and you've also worked in the religious sector, but supposing I came to you and I said, I think that we have never mobilized the unreligious and they're a growing part of the country and they historically had been very shy about coming out as unreligious, as it were. And I don't personally know of a really successful sort of agnostic, atheist, mobilizing enterprise working on civic engagement. Maybe you do. I'd like to create something like that or I'd like to fund things that are out there that exist. This is an example. Talk to me like you would if I were a donor. I would wonder what you
0: really want to have happen. I mean,
1: I would want to have those people to vote more, to, to have more clout in legislation because you see uh, religious right people grabbing power. You don't necessarily see a counterbalance to that in different other categories.
0: So a constituency that has as its ambition to counter the right, but are themselves yeah. secular. Yeah. Yeah. That does not exist that I know of. Uh, Mostly it's just progressives, <laughs> it seems like. Well, there's a lot of faith-based
1: progressives too, but yeah.
0: There's a few. Yeah. And uh, they're underfunded. And that's an easier and probably more promising tack is to organize either, you know, progressive religious people or former religious right people who are now very disenchanted. So... Maybe they're still religious, but unaffiliated, but their values are what's driving their politics. And they need a different kind of rhetoric um, than the kind of social justice progressive line.
1: You don't think there's a unifying thread among the non-religious? Maybe there could be.
0: Maybe there could be. So <laughs> the first thing I would want to do is a bunch of research to find out, to answer those questions. And if so, what, what is really motivating them?
1: What about the idea that we have an attempt to make a Christian authoritarianism run the country. Maybe you don't want that.
0: Mm-hmm. I think the subset of those who don't want authoritarian government is enough. I don't think you have to pull out the opposed uh, religion cohort.
1: Interesting. Um, tell me about... You had something to do with faith
0: in public life? Yeah. Yeah, Tell me about that. So that was an attempt to um, to do kind of work along these lines. It was incubated at um, Center for American Progress and spun out to basically counter the religious right, mostly in terms of communications and organizing clergy in like 2004, 5, 6, 7. So I joined the board in about 2010. It continues to have that mandate, 50,000 clergy members, um, does a lot of communications work both on the federal level and in the states as offices in Georgia, Florida, and Ohio, uh, but works in states all around the country on issues as well as kind of voter engagement and um, kind of amplifying a progressive religious voice in policy and civic discussions.
1: The tenor of the way you describe that makes you me think it hasn't been a huge success. Am I wrong about hearing that?
0: Yeah, I, I think so. I mean, it's an ongoing battle and, you know, progressives are largely secular, most of them. The people who have ears to hear is not that large. Um, one significant policy battles in some states. Another example is uh, Reverend Barber's Poor People's Campaign. And FPL aligns with that often. They've had Quite a bit of success in a number of instances, and overall, in making sure that there is kind of a more progressive uh, religious voice in our conversations.
1: It strikes me that having sat so many years in this seat, in looking through the philanthropic lens at the space, you must have as good a grasp as anybody about about how we are organized, how we fit together, where are their gaps, where are their successes? How do you evaluate generally the, the infrastructure, the ecosystem on the progressive side?
0: In terms of philanthropy or overall?
1: In terms of how it's funded and in terms of how it's operating yeah. because of that and connected to that or independent of that.
0: I think big foundations uh, have had a, some trouble adapting to the moment i mean it's mostly a mid 20th century institution it's kind of likes to move slowly it doesn't like to be political or ideological it likes to solve practical problems and be kind of the risk capital that creates success that that is then adopted by the private sector or government so to pivot into this highly contentious highly ideological moment where needs and opportunities pop up Week by week, and where you know ten year plans don't really make sense, I think it's had to really think about its own structure and and processes, and that's why a lot of them have formed donor collaboratives. they are working t- together in other spaces so that they can move quickly, they can kind of um, expand from their narrow program priorities. they are increasingly working with uh, individual and family foundations who are often much less sensitive to risk and want to move really quickly and uh, want to experiment. As regards philanthropy, we're kind of in the same place we are as the culture overall. We're on a cusp moment between one era and the next, and we don't know really what the future portends or how we should organize ourselves to best operate in it. Um, and then on the kind of infrastructure side, how does change happen? It can seem extremely sudden, marijuana legalization, same-sex marriage, you know, 10 years ago, both of those seemed impossible. Now, door closed, door closed, door closed, door closed, door suddenly wide open. How does that happen? Can it be replicated? What's the formula for that?
1: Or on the flip side, Roe going away, perhaps. Absolutely. Yeah. Absolutely. Or Trump and Trumpism showing up.
0: Yeah. 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 Uh, Stephen Miller regards immigration. Yeah, exactly. So how to navigate culture, politics, and civil society generally, just really tough.
1: I mean, you you said highly contentious, highly ideological time. To me, the central threat uh, above and beyond anything else is the actual mechanics of the democracy and the threat to kind of overwhelm them with the nexus between Trumpist Republicans and Trump himself and People like him and willingness to have an insurrection on January sixth to change state laws so that perhaps legislatures can overturn electoral tallies, send the other delegations, the electoral college to suppress votes. There's a lot of uh, uh, scary stuff, and it when it lines up with natural advantages that the Republicans have because they they have the rural representation right now in the Senate, et cetera, it just places the system under a threat that it hasn't seen since the Civil War and and that was a wholly different thing. I mean, how much does that occupy your thinking when you're trying to tackle important small stuff that is part of this bigger problem?
0: Right. I mean, enormously, how much can the nonprofit sector really do about those big questions, I'm not sure. I mean, philanthropy and the nonprofit sector operate best when there is some kind of consensus of a common good or a public interest. It can move that. It can expand that. Absent that, with no real leverage, except trying to create a groundswell of, of political will or cultural change, there's not much we can really do except that. And so, that's what we're doing. I mean, working through the courts, hoping. But as you say, even that's fraught with tripwires and trapdoors.
1: You're seeing money moving or starting to move in this cycle to some new things. I assume. What What are you excited about that's getting funded
0: currently? I think more emphasis on kind of cultural change and how changemakers want to relate to people who don't already agree with them. So there's, for example, the Race Class Narrative Project. I don't know if you're familiar with that.
1: I interviewed... Anat. Anat Shinker yeah. Osorio, yes. Yeah. Oh, yeah, I yeah, know yeah. through that and, and other people who've cited it. Yeah.
0: Yeah. So I think um, initiatives like that, that really try to change the terms, move away from the right-left cage match that we're in, there's a bunch of them, uh, I think is the most promising It's kind of intellectually interesting work being done. A lot of it is just counterpunching on, for example, voter suppression. Uh, Surely Roe will be another instance of that.
1: One of the areas that people have found to invest that I follow pretty closely is is in political tech. A bunch of startups, pre and particularly post-Trump's rise that were motivated by people who Who tried to use their skills in that area to make a difference, and there has an advantage that you could create a company, have the profit motive as well as the tech leverage to make change. Have you participated in any of that helped fund any of that?
0: I have helped fund that um for years. I mean a lot of it came out of the Dean campaign, and that sector has just grown and grown. I don't intimately understand a lot of it, but um. I have helped fund and kind of connect different p- potential partners to, to their work. It's, it's key. It's just absolutely key.
1: Are there things recently that you've helped fund that you would want to cite as interesting?
0: I mean, there was the movement cooperative that I played a tiny role in. There's v- various other kind of tables and networks and affiliations that I connect people to, both donors and also possible clients. It's getting to be kind of a sprawling. It is feel.
1: a lot, yeah. a lot of small, uh, point solutions and a lot of interesting innovations, a lot of duplication as there often is in capitalism. Uh, I mean, it's fascinating to, it is follow. fascinating.
0: And so better rationalization of all these different minds and, and tools and products is essential.
1: Do you see any gaps in that space that you
0: identify? I mean, getting it to the end user and getting the end user to use it to its full potential, I think, is the biggest gap and hardest challenge. So the intermediary capacity builders who can train and coach and you know strategize with end users is uh, missing.
1: One of the notable things is Silicon Valley money in the space on the left. It's not only on the left for sure, but... Uh, but founders of Microsoft and LinkedIn and many other big companies that have produced gigantic amounts of wealth have played in this space. Often the practitioners at first have felt you know, like maybe there wasn't that much on the ground knowledge and they would make assumptions that what was there wasn't good and start things afresh. And a lot of those things failed, not all of them, but a lot of them. What do you see as the successes and failures of Silicon Valley in the
0: political space of late? I mean, Silicon Valley specifically, just their comfort with risk. Um, they will move quickly. They will move a very large scale. They tend to back out quickly if things don't go as planned. But I think they have moved other kinds of donors to change their kind of appetites and processes. Other ultra high net worth donors, I think organizations like the Democracy Alliance where they can gather, they can think together, they can meet and learn from and about uh, all the efforts on the ground and other kind of infrastructure leaders has somewhat tempered that temptation to just create something new because they can be in charge of it.
1: Exuberance.
0: Exuberance. <laughs> Exuberance. <laughs> impatience. I feel like there is becoming a field now of these kinds of donors and then their staffs um, connect with its institutional donors for whom they do this work all day, every day. They know a lot. They're, you know, the organizations they work with are necessarily more cautious and careful, but they really do have a lot of knowledge and can advise new donors on what already exists, what works, what doesn't, you know, where there's gaps, where there's redundancies. Do you see much
1: hand-to-hand combat between groups for money where they run each other down or where the cooperation isn't what you would want when you're all generally on the same team?
0: Not as much as I used to. I think it's maybe more subtle now, but there is a sense of an infrastructure where we can kind of carve out a lane that is specifically advantageous both to the field generally and to us and here's what it's going to cost and here, you know... I almost sense that to some degree, and I think there's a great I've I've recommended this for a long time, for collaborations to just almost invoice donors. Here's what we want to do, here's what we here's our capacity to do it, here's what it's gonna cost. You all find a way to get to this figure. And so in that way, donors and you know, field leaders are working together, strategizing together, kind of cost analyzing together in ways that never existed five or six years ago. So it's really impressive how much cooperation there is between grantor and grantee now.
1: I mean, I asked you about the advice you would give donors coming to you. tried to get at that. Mm -hmm. I'm not sure how well I did at it. (laughs) Um, But um, what, what advice would you give to groups that are seeking to be funded? Clearly, if they're listening to this, they might be like, how can I get Scott to help direct funds to me? What I do is really important. I can't get heard so far. What should they be doing, whether it's talking to Arabella or talking to many of the other folks out there that are doing good work that care about the space? How should they be presenting
0: themselves? You have to really understand who your donor is and what they care about um, and talk in their language. So uh, you know one mistake, very understandable one that a lot of grant seekers make is they come and they propose what they want to propose in the language they want to use and just hope that the donor can kind of fit it into the processes and
1: they present what they th- they think they're doing is right, and they assume that the donor will agree with them that it's important rather or than
0: or that they can just fund it yeah as you present it rather than, no, you have to shape this into our kind of our program priorities, our culture, our language. Do you think that
1: is the way it should work? That it should be the whims of the donor and the priorities of the donor, or should it be really the people close to what needs to be done who get listened to? I mean, there's something awkward about that, about
0: sure about no, catering it
1: is. to no. the idiosyncrasies of a particular I person
0: i know i i do think it has to be a conversation i don't think donors are likely to just hand over money without some kind of negotiation of some kind and finding the 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 bridge where everybody gets what they want and everybody understands what is happening that's the goal and the and the challenge but i do think it does have to be a negotiation it does have to be a conversation
1: but if somebody comes to you it's not like they're approaching one donor, right, with one preference. They're com- you sort of represent a class of donors, right? So how can they tailor like coach them through this episode? How can they tailor what their pitch is to someone who represents a swath of people who yeah. are
0: interested? So I don't give away money. Yeah. Mostly.
1: So you're an, you're kind of an intermediary.
0: I'm a kind of an intermediary. So yeah. what I can do is say this is who the Ford Foundation is. This is what they care about. This is the language that they understand their work. Kellogg is different. Here's what you got to do there. So I can kind of give them a landscape of the cultural epistemological specifics of these different donors. Um, But that's what they, they then have to do that work.
1: I mean, when I'm pitching you my agnostic collaborative I got the signal right away, like, eh, I don't see that. I don't really see that having the characteristics that are needed to get funding. That's what I heard, right? But say I still think that's an imperative. I have a theory that that could be an active constituency that's organized in some way, like you see media organizations organized around race or ethnicity or uh, other intense interests. Who would I then go to, or could you take me to another, is there someone else out there who might hear me more positively,
0: let's yeah. say? So I would, we'd probably have to have an hour long discussion where I really pursue who it is you, we're and have really talking to make talking some about, stuff up, yes. And you have to make <laughs> some stuff up. But based on that, then yes, I could say here's here's a group or a donor or someone who could be interested in that. Or here's the research you would have to kind of come up with to make your case. When you're blazing a brand new trail like that, it's often a long sales cycle. Yeah.
1: So there's you, there's Arabella. If I'm seeking funding, I happen to have heard of you. How would I find out what the other sources of capital are? Is there a... Directory of that is it all word of mouth like you've mentioned Democracy Alliance I know there's Higher Ground Labs in tech or New Media Ventures or Open Society I've heard of a bunch of these I don't think a lot of people new to the space necessarily have or or know that Eric Schmidt has something or whoever
0: like how how would you find all of that out So there's the Foundation Center which is kind of the you know library of philanthropy. So you could get a lot of basic information there to really get a more nuanced sense. Probably the first thing I would do is so the Council on Foundation has all these affinity groups generally organized by issue of interest or community of interest, constituency of interest or place. And so you could go to their website, find out who, you know, which affinity group best matched what you want to do, see who their members are and start kind of your research that way. Or just find somebody who knows and pick their brain. Yeah.
1: Um, So one way of funding any enterprise right now is through big donors, foundations, et cetera. Another way that is clearly out there is a more grassroots kind of funding. It's, you know, email appeals and small donations, and maybe you need seed money to get that going, but there are some types of groups that have raised tens of millions of dollars almost solely through that path. If my job was to create a group again in in the agnostic land, but that's just representing a new group, how would I go about trying to build it through kind of grassroots funding? Or is that an area that you're not on top of?
0: I'm not that familiar with it. I I don't think it's been that successful recently for most groups, there's been a lot of experiments. Um, Some have done it pretty effectively, people's action I think is one. I think you gotta find lists, you gotta find places where people who might support you congregate. It's tough, I mean, ethically I think it's really the way to go, but it's just procedurally, it's really tough.
1: Yeah, it seems to require a certain expertise and a certain niche. A certain Um, niche, yeah. yeah. Um, I'm not sure if I've asked the right questions to really get at what it is you do and and what your expertise exactly. What should I have asked that I haven't?
0: So what I really do is help donors and also field leaders find places to organize money and information. Is that clarifying? Maybe not at all. (laughs) (laughs) Well...
1: I think it's been clarified by this whole conversation. Yeah. Why is this a good job for you? What is what? I mean, you've been doing this for a long time. You're still doing it. That must mean. I'm assuming it's gratifying. It, you have sense of efficacy in the world because of it. You you like it. What?
0: Why? Yeah. It's endlessly intellectually interesting. Um, you see needs and challenges and opportunities in the world. What? alchemy of money and activities can help solve those. I love helping to answer those questions. I think of
1: a lot of folks in this space as political entrepreneurs. Other people talk about civic entrepreneurs, lots of different terms, social entrepreneurs, but I'm pretty focused on the political world, the campaigns. Who have you seen that really impresses you out there as a political entrepreneur who's helped build something substantial from scratch by doing the things that you need to do by finding the money by building an organization that is efficacious and and useful out there what are some examples you think of the of the bright spots
0: the right to marry campaign i know you had Bobby Clark on recently. That, and like, Evan
1: Wolfson also I oh, interviewed. Yeah. He, oh, that's i could got find out. that one. He's, oh, okay. He, he was tremendous. I mean, yes. I think he'll be released before a year or so, but okay. he's not out yet. Bobby Clark was great too.
0: That's the paradigm in a way. H-CAN, um, Mar- Margarita George, who, if you haven't had on, you should. Incredibly successful given a pretty tiny budget. Like return on investment, that she provides and it provides, enormous.
1: Yeah, Margarita, I interviewed her back in 2018. That is an impressive example. Who else? Who else?
0: Who's running Heartland? Sarah Janes. She ran the Washington State Donor Table for years and years. What do you think of Sarah? She's fantastic. You should have her on. She's fantastic. Interviewing her later today. Are you really? By weird happenstance, (laughs) yes. So, huh? What, what should I? What should I ask her? So, ask her all about these re- the rural stuff and what's. I mean,
1: that's what she's doing right now. But like any per- specific questions?
0: Yes, this like what organizations are doing the best work. Um, so, whatever question you asked me, where I said uh, land stewardship trust was the answer. Yeah. Ask her that question; she will give you dozens and dozens of amazing stories. It
1: seems like she has. A pretty deep background in the progressive infrastructure beyond what you mentioned. Yeah. yeah. Yeah.
0: Yeah. So she was one of the first, I mean, on the Washington state donor table, you should ask her about that too. It's unique. She like conducted that big orchestra masterfully. Um, and she has history and climate, um, race equity. And uh, so she brings all of that to this rural work. And, you know, it's really blazing a trail.
1: Yeah, well, I'm looking forward to talking to her for sure. And I thought it was a pretty neat intersection between you and her, and uh, the same and Bobby, day. And Bobby.
0: Bobby works works for Heartland too, so yeah, yeah.
1: yeah. yeah. Uh, well, that's cool. Anything else that you have going right now that you'd like to talk about?
0: God, I have so much going. I think answering the question and assembling the strategies to persuade. Americans who don't agree with us as progressives is the challenge that most occupies my imagination right right now. And so faith, rural, non-ideological language that's nonetheless values-centered.
1: I think there's a lot of value to that. And I would love to see a huge amount of success there. And I think it's necessary. You You know that you come up against that rather fierce argument that that's a waste of time lately, and that we should only just mobilize our own team and not worry about the heavy lift of moving the marginals over. Uh, how do you, what's your view on that?
0: I think at 11 months, we'll see that the math does not support that strategy.
1: Because we're going to get crushed in the midterms. We're going to anyway. get
0: crushed. Yeah. 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 Uh-huh. And the Senate just looks like, will we ever get it again? I mean, well,
1: it's looked like that many times, but I know what you mean, yeah i mean it, we we the
0: electorate's never been this divided this way, mostly urban rural. It's
1: very scary how the margins what it reminds me of is the big flip of the south from democratic to Republican, and where the solid democratic South became the solid Republican south in a almost irretrievable way for a long time, notwithstanding Georgia now. Yeah. And we'll see about that. We'll see about that.
0: I agree. I mean, when I grew up in Iowa, our senators were John Culver and Dick Clark and John Harold Culver, Hughes. very
1: progressive.
0: All of those yeah, guys. Yeah. Harold yeah, Hughes. Yeah.
1: You had like, that in you, Nebraska. You had that in South Dakota. You, in Ohio. You had, yeah. In absolutely. Wisconsin. Yeah.
0: Like what the Howard hell Metzenbaum happened? and people. Exactly. Yeah. yeah. you know, Liberal Democrats of kind of the Bernie vein. It was the Prairie populace. and I think that I think that electorate is, is still there. Um, right now, they're electing right
1: wing populists, exactly, lunatic populists,
0: right, uh, who will dev- further devastate rural economies. Yeah. So, so, I don't think we're going back to 1972, but um, well, if it's flipped from them to us, it can flip back
1: from us to them.
0: It can, it can. Yeah. But what flips it? Yeah. What's the story? What's the language? Well, who are the candidates? What infrastructure is, requ- is required? What pushback against the right? What oblique innovation that w- we're not even thinking of because we're so locked into this bipolar cage match? That's what I think faith could. Act, I think that's what it could bring.
1: One beachhead.
0: It yeah. it 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 has a language and a set of. Um, Resources, um, scripture, doctrine, whatever,
1: um, and adherents, and and organizing groups and things like that that are there already. A
0: few, yeah. yeah. I mean, um, I mean, churches, right? Liberal churches, yeah. But I think I think we have to almost do away with the adjective because it is a values, it is a progressive, values centered priority, and civil, and most people. Are, dev- are devout.
1: But, but so many churches have bought lock, stock and barrel, the sinning real estate developer. They from have. New York. They have. They Why? have. How
0: is that? How, happened? how inept are we that, that, or that, how happened. skillful
1: was he? I mean, or something, you know, like one of the things that I'm curious to get your view on is Trump for all his innumerable, problems has a skill in taking a message and getting it out there that message he takes advantage of lack of shame and untethered to the truth all of those things but like if you look at how biden communicates compared to how trump communicates a lot of times we don't know what biden is currently thinking we knew what trump was thinking do you have any advice to the powers that be about how we can change that or who is good at helping change that or structurally, is there something better that we can be doing?
0: There are lots of groups, really smart people working on this. They could answer that question better than I could. I think talking in terms of stories and characters and, you know.
1: Lots of groups seems like such a poor answer. For, I mean, I'm aware, aware of a lot, a lot of those groups and the intelligence of the people involved and, and you know, everything from very good pollsters to very good messaging specialists to groups that are carrying the water in different areas. But there is no chief propagandist.
0: No, there's not. Yeah. There's not.
1: In the best sense of propaganda.
0: I mean, the p- people who I think do, like Stacey Abrams does it extremely well. Yeah.
1: I mean, we, we tend to be dependent on a spectacular candidate.
0: We do. Yeah, We do. We do. Yeah. We do. Huh. And none of what makes them spectacular seems to move out anywhere else. Well, people copy.
1: People, and certainly they've learned from Trump, right? They've learned on the other side, they've learned a whole bunch of tactics that are undermining the whole system from him. They've copied like crazy.
0: Yeah namely that shame doesn't matter it's not a thing anymore and
1: just power right through whatever accusation
0: truth or plausibility doesn't matter it's it really is a a kind of possession state that our democracy and our culture is in right now what does that mean like how is it possible that we can't agree on anything that truth just really doesn't matter we're just so motivated by resentment and contempt for an imagined other.
1: I don't know if that's too different from times in the 19th century when they had all all partisan newspapers and and wild accusations against the other sides. and, And it's not fun.
0: The drug delivery system is much more efficient and effective and always on now. Yeah,
1: the the social networks, the. The Fox News is all yeah. of these things. Yep. Yeah. What yeah. what is there something that you hold on to for optimism?
0: I'm never optimistic. I'm always no. hopeful, but I'm never optimistic. Uh
1: do you think we're do you think we're kind of doomed?
0: No, I don't think we're doomed.
1: So you are optimistic?
0: Well, I don't know that we're <laughs> headed to a great place, <laughs> but you know, there's the climate apocalypse. Yeah. That's looking good. That's looking great. Um, I do think that um we are just in this transition state from the kind of Reagan, neoliberal, everything. It's kind of become tattered and frayed. I don't think we're going back. I don't think we'll see a President Paul Ryan probably. So what, but what's next? And the, you know, we know what one side, what one avenue could be, these authoritarian, what's, what's our social political imaginary. Um out of out of this moment
1: a multiracial democracy progressive yeah um if 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 you had to put your finger on a difference between what you think should be done and what generally the donors you represent think should be done is there something
0: i don't think it's a real difference but i really do prioritize this culture work and thinking and like how Could we knit together a a story of the common good and a, a story of our traditions that would be a center of gravity for most people and have them hopeful and cooperate moving forward?
1: James Carville recently said something that pointed out the difference between how everyday Americans speak and how woke liberals speak and There is a gap. I I can pick that up. I I can, having done this podcast for a few years, I think I can hear both languages uh, now in a a more clear way. But there is a giant educational gap, particularly white people, between the educated and the uneducated and a lot of its language. And maybe that's to the detriment of our politics. If a lot of the decision makers are speaking a kind of newish, calibrated academic uh,
0: language, how do we get past that if if that's a problem? I, uh, more shared brown candidates. I mean, more candidates who really authentically have those kind of cultural and, and ling- linguistic pillars, um, especially in specific places. People are not wrong that a cosmopolitan elite have really kind of Benefited enormously by the last 40 years and left most everyone else behind. And those
1: are your donors.
0: Mm-hmm. And our office holders and your listeners. And, you know, that's our bubble.
1: Yeah, it is. It's, uh, it's one of the many little problems that we have yeah. to deal with. Hey, it's, yeah. it's been really great, Scott, to talk to you. I, I appreciate your time.
0: Is there anything else you want to say? I, it's been fun. I, it seems like I've babbled incoherently through most of it, but this was fun.
1: And um, I think I may have led you to that incoherence. <laughs> it's all my fault. I take all the blame.
0: My job and my sector is this strange and mysterious and not easy to explain or assess world um, and probably getting less. So I think it was a lot easier to talk about philanthropy 40 years ago, um, but now it's it's just kind of gotten very hard.
1: Do you think if somebody who listened to the last hour that we've talked to each other, do uh, you think there's anything that they would come away with that you would want to correct? Or do you think it's pretty been pretty representative of what you see?
0: I think it's pretty representative. I think um, what a lot of people don't understand, especially about foundations and that part of philanthropy is that there are so many good people with good ideas doing good work and it's just really difficult to decide who to fund and how much to fund. And that sorting through of commitment is is a skill and it's really difficult. There's just so much great work.
1: I might guess that you would say something like there's a lot of crappy stuff out there. It's hard to find the the diamonds. But you're saying there's so much good stuff, it's hard to pick amongst them.
0: Absolutely, that's, absolutely. That's interesting. Like what would happen if um, funders stopped funding a $500,000 a year organizations? Those are good people doing incredibly good work, probably not that much real impact relative to these big issues we've been talking about. That would be $50 million. Um, that could go to something else?
1: Not that much in the scheme of things.
0: Uh, Pretty significant though.
1: But the the Uh, nice thing about, I mean, I I hear that, but the nice thing about a $500,000, a lot of tests of $500,000 is that some of those may turn into the $50 million organization by testing something small. I mean, like I, I bootstrapped a software company. I never raised a dollar. I built some software. I sold it. And, my prejudice as a founder is towards a lean iterative methodology for building an organization maybe because that's the only thing i know but as compared to people i've seen who raised a bunch of money and squandered it in my view right because they didn't maybe have the time to learn what they were doing do you think that might not be the case that a bunch of people testing $500,000 might be a an okay technique?
0: I think it it could be. I think it's hard to compare because what does success look like? What does leverage look like? Um, a lot of these $500,000 organizations stay $500,000 organizations yeah. like for or decades. Yeah. They almost never go away. Really? <laughs> <laughs> they, don't, yeah. they almost never go away. Yeah. There could be more mergers and acquisitions. Um, I th- especially on the progressive side, I think that is a conversation that would be important to have but we probably won't. Mainly because there's so much good work being done at really small scale, it will not add up to much. Almost no $500,000 organizations turn into $50 million organizations. Few. Um,
1: I suppose that's true in the for profit
0: side too. But then they go away. I mean, then they do die.
1: Well, if they, I mean, either they become lifestyle enterprises that uh, bump along.
0: Uh-huh, feeding uh-huh, their founder,
1: right? Or they? I mean, they're not maybe not truly growth oriented, and that could be true for nonprofits too,
0: right? Yeah. Uh, yeah. yeah. And I actually think that that could be in more. I think that could be encouraged more. Like, you don't have to grow if your mission is coherent, and your resources are adequate to serve that mission. You do not need to expand. You do not need to hire more staff.
1: If you want to fix a county somewhere on some issue, you don't need to be fifty million dollars.
0: Exactly, exactly.
1: Well, I hope we get a chance to talk again sometime.
0: I would enjoy that. Thank you so much for inviting me. (laughs) This has been fun. Take care.
1: That was Scott Nielsen. Scott is at ArabellaAdvisors.com. This is Nathaniel G. Perlman with The Great Battlefield Podcast can find us at greatbattlefield.com or by searching for Great Battlefield in places where podcasts are found.